Mark chapter 1 this morning, verses 7 and 8. So just two verses this morning. And I started off in my outline going, man, it's going to be a, it's going to be a short sermon, but that's just not the case. <laughs> two verses packed with so much, so much beautiful truth for us. Oh, it's just amazing. And so we, last week we started our series in Mark and we talked about who John Mark was and his, uh, uh, um, he was a close associate with the Apostle Peter and so he recorded everything that Peter told him and he did it in Rome in a time when the church, the Christian church, was undergoing severe persecution. And, um, you know, it, it's not said or stated, but, but we've got to remember we're dealing with, with humans who are fragile and broken just like us. And no doubt, as they were going through this persecution, as they had encountered Jesus in a saving way, did they begin to, I wonder if they didn't begin to doubt whether or not what they had done with Jesus and placed their faith in Jesus, whether or not it was, it was worth it or if it was true, uh, as all of us, right, we should be willing to admit as we go through the trials in life, sometimes that doubt begins to, to creep in. And the... the one of my most favorite passages in Mark is in Mark chapter 9 when, when Jesus encounters um, a father and his, and his son who is undergoing these challenges and asks Jesus to be healed. And, and Jesus said, if you believe, all things can be, be true. And he, they both said, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. And thankfully, God has preserved his word for us that we can all these years later, go to his inspired, preserved word and, and, and when those doubts creep in, right? Press into God and behold the face of Jesus in his word. And as we talked about last week, as we behold Jesus in the words, in the inspired words of, of the Gospels and the New Testament, right? We, we know it's the sword of the Spirit. It is what God uses for us to bolster us in our faith, and encourage us to press on in trials and tribulations of this world. And so we have this opportunity as we closed Ecclesiastes and ended with this, this challenge to live your lives for the glory of God and to walk in fear of Him and keep His commandments as, as Solomon said in the closing of Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> we know, given... Us, us being given the entirety of God's revealed word, his special revelation in his word, that he's empowered us through, through the gospel of Jesus Christ to live that out. He's given us these wonderful gifts to, to not have to live this Christian life, this Christian call in our own strength, but in the power and strength of God and through the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, Lord willing. And verses 7 and 8 describe the uniqueness of Jesus. But I just want to go back a few verses and, and read a few verses that we covered last week so we can get into, uh, um, uh, just remember what we, we've already discussed and, and where the, the context of verses 7 and 8 are coming in. Right, uh, Mark begins the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the beginning of, of John the Baptist going in and proclaiming and making a way for, uh, the, for, the, for the Messiah. He was uh, prophesied 
person that uh, was in the Old Testament that was to come and prepare the way, to make the way for, for this Messiah that would show up on the scene. And it is John the Baptist who fulfills this. And so Mark records the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus with John the Baptist fulfilling this Old Testament proclamation of this one who would come to prepare the way. Verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we just just, uh, went through that in great detail last week, what repentance is and what John was proclaiming and how baptism was a symbol of an inward desire. And it's interesting that this long prophesied Messiah or long expected Messiah, he arrives on the scene and and John comes and fulfills the Old Testament scripture that says that he was going to come and prepare and he did not build uh, the Messiah a huge army. He did not build the Messiah a huge castle. He didn't call people to come and serve the Messiah. He prepared the way of the Lord by proclaiming the need for repentance, for a change of mind, and a change of direction. He's calling out for them, for all Jerusalem and all the, the, the areas around them, their need, their, their problem, that they have a sin problem with, with God. And he's proclaiming their need to, to turn and, and embrace this new perspective that the Messiah is going to bring. But he points out the problem that is the problem for all of humanity. And that is sin. That we have a sin problem in the eyes of a holy and just God. I, like most of you, have often watered down Creator God as someone I can understand and someone who is not as holy and just as He's revealed Himself to be. But that is not the God of Scriptures. That is not the God who has been revealed, who He has revealed Himself in Scripture. He is holy and perfectly holy, and he cannot be in the presence of sin. And so we all have a sin problem. And so John prepares the way by proclaiming this need for forgiveness of sins, to turn, to to be forgiven in the eyes of a holy God, and baptism in the water was a symbol of that inward desire. We go on in verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And so this was a big, huge movement of God, right? All of Jerusalem, all these people from the city and all of the countryside around them were coming to John the Baptist and, and, and being baptized as a symbol of their acknowledgement that they have a sin problem in the eyes of a holy God, confessing their sins, being baptized. All these things pointing to the need of truly what the Jesus will do and has done for us. It was a huge movement of God. Verse 6, and so we see here that people weren't coming out from all of Jerusalem and the countryside because John the Baptist was some slick, charismatic guy in a really nice suit. You know? This was a movement of God. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt. He was not in high society. He wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he proclaimed, verse 7, one who is more powerful than I am is, is coming after me. 
and I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. Verse 8, he says, I baptize you with water. Again, a symbolic reference. Baptism that we do is a symbolic of the spiritual baptism that we have with Christ that we're going to be covering today. He says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This prophesied Messiah who is coming will baptize with the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual baptism, a complete immersion into the work of Jesus Christ ultimately. And it is through the power, God the Spirit, our, the third person of our triune God, that the gospel goes forth and people hear it and encounter Jesus in that saving way and turn from an abandoned hope and anything else and place their faith and trust in Christ alone. It is through the power of the Spirit. I baptize you with water. I'm doing this symbolically of your need, but the one who is coming is going to do a spiritual work, and it's not symbolic. It is the real deal. It is the thing that this baptism points to. And ultimately, in verses 7 and 8, John the Baptist is declaring the uniqueness of Jesus, that Jesus is a unique human he is a very unique man. He is different than all the rest of us. Scriptures again and again point to, to Christ's uniqueness. And so I just want to spend the next few minutes going over what Scripture declares, or who Scripture declares Jesus to be and the unique person that He truly is. Because yes, Jesus truly was a man. 100% a man. But He's also 100% God. Something our minds can't even begin to, to wrap ourselves around. But, but that is what Scripture declares, that Jesus was, was very unique. He was not like us. He was a unique man because he was God in the very flesh. And that's the Scriptures that we, I want to take, take us through this morning to, to demonstrate his uniqueness. So the uniqueness of Jesus in verse 7 John the Baptist says this, He proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me, and I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. So John the Baptist, he has a following, right? The entire city is coming out to be baptized and to, to hear him and his proclamations of this need for, for the repentance of sins and uh, baptism for the repentance of sins and all these things. They're, they're doing these things. He's gaining this huge following, and he's, he's making sure that people know, no, it's not me. I'm not the one you are looking for. I'm here to prepare the way for him. And this one who is coming is very unique. He is more powerful than I am. And I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. So what makes Jesus so unique? The Scriptures declare many unique things about Jesus. The Gospel of Luke tells us that through what we say is commonly called the Christmas story, right? That Jesus was uniquely conceived. He was not conceived like you and I. Right? We, we know how we were conceived. And our parents before them. Tracing all the way back to the beginning of man through Adam and Eve. That's how we were conceived. And scriptures declare in Romans chapter 5 and, and a little bit of chapter 6, if you want to look it up, 
declare that because we were of this nature, of this nature of Adam and Eve, we were born in a, in a sinful state in the eyes of a holy God. We were born separated from, from our Creator. God's intention was for us to be completely dependent upon Him and for us to be Him to provide for all of us and have fellowship with God, and that was broken in the garden. And as Scripture follows human history, from that time we see the consequences of the sin. Nature again and again and again, a people who are rebellious towards their God and are separated from them because of their sin. But Jesus is uniquely conceived. Jesus wasn't born like you and I. Right? In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, it's recorded for us. The angel appeared to Mary and says this, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Jesus is unique, and He was uniquely conceived by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus wasn't born with that sinful nature that you and I suffer from because He was ultimately begotten of God. Uniquely conceived. The Scriptures also declare Jesus' uniqueness in His divinity, His deity. Jesus was not only uniquely conceived, but He was uniquely divine. Divine means proceeding directly from God. And he's unique in that, the Scriptures declare. John starts his Gospel off tying his revelation of Jesus to the very beginning of creation. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, right? God created. John starts his Gospel off by saying, in the beginning was the Word. And we know the Word is synonymous with Jesus Christ because the Scripture, John will go on to declare that to us explicitly. That this Word, this Logos, this Word of God is Jesus. And John says, in the beginning, before anything was created, there was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was what? With God. And the Word was God. This idea, and we're going to talk more about the triune nature of our God next week as we see Jesus' baptism. But this idea of a, a single God, one God, there's only one God, the Scriptures declare, but yet He exists in three distinct persons. that are, don't, God doesn't just play the actor of the Father and the Spirit and, and Jesus and, and do all the... No, they are uniquely uh, personages. They, they, they think with one another. They, they have the concept to, to love one another. Right? They act independently of one another, yet Scriptures declare there is one God. And this one God exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And it's Scriptures like this that we derive it from. John says, the Word, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. When creation happened, Jesus already existed with God. And not only was Jesus with God, the Word was God. Pointing to his deity, Jesus was a very unique man, different from us. Verse 2 of John, he was with God in the beginning. Right? Scripture declares that the Father speaks and the Spirit was moving upon the waters in creation. And the scriptures like John 
One says Jesus was involved in creation. He was with, the, was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Jesus just, just wasn't a messenger sent from God. Jesus was God. He was involved in creation. All things were created by him. That has been created. And we know this word that he's speaking of is Jesus because John goes on in verse 14, the word became flesh. God from heaven, your creator, became a man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God has manifested himself in Jesus Do you want to know your Creator? Behold Jesus. See Him for who He is in Scripture. He is your Creator who's come to save you and to rescue you. And He did it by becoming a man. The Apostle John testifies to Jesus coming into and dwelling as as a man. We observed His glory. The glory as the one and only, the monogamous, the, the only begotten. He's the unique Son of God. There's only one. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father. And Jesus has manifested when in, earth, in His earthly ministry to be full of grace and full of truth. We can rest and be reassured that God has expressed Himself in Jesus. It is Him we can find truth. It is Him through whom we can find God's grace and a means in which we can have relationship with Him. And then John brings us back to where we began this morning. In a parenthetical thought, he he points us back to John the Baptist proclaiming the uniqueness of Jesus John testified, this is verse 15, I believe. John testified concerning him and explained, this was the one whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. John records John the Baptist saying, not only is he greater than than John the Baptist, but he existed prior to John the Baptist. And if we know the other Gospels, we know that John the Baptist was born first through Elizabeth. And so it's explicitly telling us that Jesus has always existed. He is the I Am of the Old Testament. He has always existed as God. And he came to save us by becoming a man. But he is unique in that. And John goes on to tell us about this unique baptism that Jesus came into his creation to do. Anyone can baptize with water. We can create something tomorrow and say, we're going to do baptisms, and it means it's symbolic of this. Many religions do it. But the Scriptures declare that it is only Jesus who can baptize with the Holy Spirit and make someone who is dead alive. 
Mark says in one eight, this is again John the Baptist's testimony, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus testified to it before he ascended to the right hand of the Father in Acts chapter 1. He's telling his disciples, he's reassuring his disciples. Just as he was about to be ascending to the right hand of the Father, he tells them this in verse 4 of Acts 1. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. Our God has promised us many things in His Word. And He is faithful. Just as it was here. Jesus told him to wait for the promises, the prom- promise of the Father, and which is what? Which He said, you have heard me speak about. Jesus told him in His earthly ministry, I'm, I'm going away so that the Comforter may come, the Holy Spirit may come. Verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In a few days. And Acts goes on in chapter 2 to, to record the, the great movement of the God the Spirit upon the church. And that was fulfilled. This idea of baptism of the Holy Spirit is this spiritual regeneration, this making us new and a, a new creature in Christ in a, in a spiritual sense. It is not symbolic, but it is a, it's a spiritual thing in which God does as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus and the Holy Spirit convicts someone of their need to turn and replace their faith in Christ alone. And when we do that, when we receive the gospel, when we believe it and abandon hope and all else, the scriptures declare that we are the Spirit of God makes us new. He spiritually unifies us with Christ. This baptism of the Spirit, John Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 talking about the church and how the church are, are, are us, the, the people. It's not, not the walls. It's not, it's not the name Baptist on the sign out there. The, the church of Christ is people who hear the gospel message, who receive it and believe it, and are added through the spiritual union of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And he's trying to show this church in Corinth that just as the members of our body, we're not all the hand. We can't all be the hand. We all have different parts to play as Christ's church is physically manifested in local assemblies like this one. And he says, for we were all baptized, fully immersed the spiritual union by, by what? By one spirit, capital S, into one body, the body of Christ. There's no differentiation in race or religious uh, background or ethnicity. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. And it is this unique baptism of the Holy Spirit through what Christ has done that we can be given this eternal life that's spoke of about, that is called being born again, being made new. It's the unique birth that the gospel of Jesus Christ affords us today. Knowing that as we proclaim Jesus and what He's done and ask people to to receive and believe it, that it's the God, the Spirit, that that makes that person uh, from, from death to life, Ephesians says. 
And it's this unique birth that is from above. It's being born again or, or literally born from above. And it's recorded in John's Gospel as well, where Jesus speaks explicitly about it. There's this religious leader named Nicodemus who comes and, and he says, I, I can tell that you're of God because of all the things that you're doing. And Jesus just cuts straight to the chase. Just as John the Baptist says, this is your problem, it's sin. Jesus tells him this, because straight to the case with Nicodemus. Jesus replied to this religious leader, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This spiritual birth, this baptism of the Holy Spirit is required to enter into the kingdom of God. According to the words of Jesus, I hope you know that it's not me. It's what Scripture declares. We must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus doesn't understand this. Verse 4, how can anyone be born when he is old, he says. Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb? How can we be born again physically? We're already born. We can't re-enter our mother's womb. And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and of the Spirit, capital S, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. He goes on to say, whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. But whatever is born of the Spirit, and that should bring a smile to your face. If you've encountered Jesus in the saving way that the Spirit of God has given you new life, that He's spiritually unified you with Christ, whatever is born of the Spirit is Spirit. He goes on to say, do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. For all those of us who live in Idaho Falls, we know exactly what he's talking about, right? The wind can ultimately blow us over here, but we can't see it coming. We don't know where it's going after it hits us. And this is the movement of the Spirit of God. Is God sovereignly working through the proclamation of his gospel? And we remain faithful to proclaim it and to pray and to ask God that he would use it to save people. But it is ultimately through the Spirit that gives us this new life in Jesus that spiritually unifies with him, spiritually unifies us with him. And this born again, this born from above is uniquely received by us talking with pastors from the south this is the hardest part of their ministries because it's christianity is so just included in their culture that people just assume that they're saved because they've been going to church their whole life when they've never truly encountered jesus in that saving way i don't know how many testimonies i've heard of people saying yeah i went forward when i was a kid but i had no idea what i was doing i was just everyone else was going forward so to be saved is to encounter, to understand your need of and the, the problem that you have, your sin, and to encounter Jesus in this saving way. And so we must receive it as individuals. Salvation is not through your family or through your church that you go to. Salvation is you personally encountering Jesus in a saving way. And that is unique in this world because there's many world religions that say, All you have to do is follow our program. 
All you have to do are do these things and do these things. And, and someone that, is, that has a, the representative of God is going to tell you when you've done enough. So many world religions that I can point to that say you must do, you must do, you must do. When the Scriptures declare, it is done. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. And we must do nothing but receive it. It's uniquely received because we acknowledge we can't do it in our own power. We can't be good enough long enough. We can't be righteous, even close to being righteous. When we see the holiness and righteousness of who God is and who He's revealed Himself to be. And that's why these words in Titus I just go to again and again to remind me of what God has done for me and I pray for you in Christ Jesus. As Paul writes to Titus, a pastor, and he says, reminds Titus, he saved us. God saved us through this unique experience of being born from above. And how do we receive this gift? Paul makes sure to to declare it's not by works of righteousness that we have done but according to His mercy. See, God's attributes are on full display in His creation through what He's doing through the Gospel. God is holy and just, and he, to be holy and just, He must punish sin. But God is awesome. It's not just His only attribute. God is also merciful and loving and gracious. And all of His attributes are on display for us to see that He is merciful He withholds what we truly deserve as the gospel goes forward. What we truly deserve is punishment for our sin. Eternal retribution because He is eternal and holy. But God remains merciful through the gospel. Paul says we're not saved by the works that we have done, the righteousness that we can muster up, but according to His mercy through the what? Through the washing of regeneration, the spiritual renewing, of spiritual washing, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It is the God the Spirit who comes as the Gospel is proclaimed, as people receive Jesus who makes us born from above, spiritually regenerated and renewed. He goes on in verse 6 of Titus, of chapter 3, He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly. This gospel message is the Spirit, Spirit's power and conviction pouring us out, doing this work, this spiritual work. He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly through what? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, having been justified, that means a just judge declaring someone righteous or forgiven. Paul says we're not justified in the eyes of God by, again, what we've done, but, but by his, through His grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. We are justified by God's grace. And we become heirs with the hope of eternal life through what Jesus has done. This unique man came and became a man so that he could live the law perfectly, the, the standard that God has laid out to demonstrate his holiness to a people like us. And it is only Jesus who was uniquely conceived by Mary, who was God in the flesh, that could live God's law perfectly. And unlike the priests of the Old Testament who first had to do an offering for their sin before they could do an offering for their people, Jesus had no sin to bear 
for in and of himself. But he went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sin for us. He took what we deserve upon himself. Your creator, God became a man to pay the penalty that we deserve so that we could be recipients of his grace. Grace means God's unmerited favor. We can do nothing to earn it. We just must receive and believe and trust in Christ to accomplish substitutionary work alone. And it is those who do that who are born again and are given this unique baptism of the Holy Spirit to be unified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection that we all stand or sit today with the hope of eternal life that is to come through what Christ has done. And He's done it through this unique sacrifice. I just want to close with this passage in First Peter. And you can see the heading that I put up here. How Christ's accomplished work was it. It was paid in full to Talestai. It is finished. As he hung on the cross, that is his last words were. The Apostle Peter writes this, For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all, not again and again. The Old Testament and the sacrifices that happened in the temple, sacrifices of animals day after day after day after day, which is glorious and hideous, and it's supposed to be because God is trying to show us how heinous our sin is and how costly our sin is. Day after day, sacrifices were made. But those sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointing to the ultimate Lamb of God who would pay our sin penalty once and for all. That His shed blood would be, the new, would be the new covenant in which people can have eternal life. For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all. The righteousness, or the righteous for the unrighteous. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us. Peter goes on to say that he might bring you to God. We can be reconciled to our Creator. We can have this eternal life through what Christ has done. The righteous God-man stood in your place and took the penalty that you deserve, what you truly deserve, so that you can be brought into relationship and fellowship with your Creator God. He was put to death, Jesus was, in the flesh, right? He took upon flesh so that he could go to the cross and be our substitute. But praise be to God, he was made alive three days later. He bodily rose from the grave by the Spirit. And it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit as the gospel is proclaimed as you receive and believe it that the Spirit of God will raise you to newness of life in Christ. And the promise of the hope of eternal life that is to come. This unique person of Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who paid the penalty for you. And I want to close with this, with this thought. Why is it so important to take the last 35 minutes or so and, and, and try to display to you that Jesus was unique 
that he was not created? Why is that important? Am I just being difficult? It's so important. As we see the entirety of Scripture, and we see the eternality of God and the, 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 uh, the judgment that is coming for those who are not found in Christ is an eternal judgment because God is eternal. And God demands an eternal payment for our sin. And if Jesus is just created, if he's just like you and I, if he's just another being or a good teacher or an ambassador of God, then his sacrifice on the cross was insufficient because it's not an eternal payment. But if he was eternal God who came up into his creation as a man, he paid the eternal payment once and for all for us so that we could have his righteousness and the eternal life that is to come. That's why the virgin birth is so important. That's why the uniqueness of God, Jesus being God in the flesh is so important because the atonement that he provides for us must be sufficient for the demands of a holy, eternal, righteous God. And that is why we cling to who Jesus has been revealed to in his, in his word. I pray that you've encountered this Jesus in a saving way that you too could be born from above. That you too could have newness of life that you too would embrace and just be given the the promise of the eternal hope of the eternal life that is to come i pray if you have any questions about that come forward during the song or or meet me after service i i want to show you and answer any questions that you might have this is the of utmost importance this is the most important thing in your life what you do with jesus and who he's revealed himself to be I pray that the Spirit would show you your need if you haven't encountered Jesus for to receive Him and believe in His accomplished work alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this opportunity, God, to open up Your Word, to see the uniqueness of Your salvation story, how You've pursued us. You've taken upon the form of a, of a man through God the Son, Lord, to come to do what we could not do and to be the perfect sacrifice for us. We're so grateful. And we pray, God, that if there's anyone who has not encountered Jesus in this saving way, that they too would be baptized by the Spirit of God. They would be raised from death to newness of life in Him through the spiritual regeneration that You provide as they abandon hope in all else and receive and believe and trust in Christ alone. We ask that you would do it for your glory. And we are so grateful, Lord, for all that you do for us. We say these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.